Warren and Jackie Hans had little clue how hellish and how life-changing July of 2009 would become. Warren and Jackie were the proud parents of three daughters. They were very healthy, very beautiful, and very vivacious. Eight-year-old Emma, seven-year-old Allison, and five-year-old Katie. Their daughters had been looking forward for some time of going camping with Warren's sister, Diane Schuler, and her husband as long, uh, along with their children, some two hours away. Diane Schuler was someone whom Jackie and Warren thought they knew and respected, even someone who they had asked advice of from time to time. But something went tragically amiss. At the end of the week, on the way home, Diane Schuler drove the wrong way at speeds of more than 80 miles an hour on the Taconic Parkway, more than twice the legal alcohol limit. She crashed head-on into another vehicle, killing herself, her own daughter, the three Hans daughters, as well as three individuals in the oncoming vehicle. Jackie went on to describe the emotional trauma of losing three daughters. Not only suffering from the loss, Jackie began to believe the media reports who questioned her fitness and competence as a mother for allowing her three daughters into that kind of situation. She described how she sank into deep depression, how it threatened her marriage, how she even planned her own suicide hurting so deeply, only wanting to be with her three daughters. Surrounding her was a deeply devoted husband, as well as three incredibly loyal friends who monitored her day and night. They kept anything that would out of her hands in which she might, she might hurt herself. And through that kind of love and support of her husband and those three friends, she began the healing process. She went on to write a book in which she called, I'll See You Again. She described having a dream in which she reached through the gate of heaven and touched the hands of her daughters. And hearing God say, your daughters are okay. Warren and Jackie went on to try for another pregnancy, and which was successful, and they had another daughter. But here's the part I want you to get. She described the scene of going to her, sis her sister-in-law's grave and, and putting her hand on her gravestone. And she said, she described what she said. She said, Diane, I, I don't understand why or what, what was going on in your life. But I liked you, and I cared about you. And then those amazing words, and I forgive you. When asked by the interviewer, why would you forgive her? She replied, I realized I could never love my daughter the way I needed to without forgiving Diane. Life can be incredibly brutal, 
And in the midst of it, sometimes we lose sight of some of those basic truths about God. I want to welcome you back to our study of Romans and finish what I consider one of the greatest portions of Scripture. And I hope this morning that this this study has been life-changing for you, that it has stretched your faith, and even more than that, I hope it's been encouraging. I really need, I I really think that the church should be a place of encouragement, a place where you get lifted up. Because in the midst of a lot of those hard moments of life, we do just what Don Showalter taught us. We kind of emotionally shut down, or we become a fighter, kind of go through life like like a porcupine, just needling anybody who comes close, or we become a runner. Somebody just runs from life. And one of the things I've realized in life is that a true friend always brings you back to God. You see, in the arms and the presence of God, we find answers to some of these hard things in life that we go through. And uh, we also get that necessary courage transfusion that we need to, that courage we need to, when we go through some of those hard things to to kind of get back up and dust ourselves off and keep walking with God. Well, today there's an excellent portion of Scripture for just for this occasion. It's kind of the climax of, of everything I've been teaching you, and it's that, and yet there's some found, it has that, that foundational truth that Paul has been teaching us. You have your Bibles. You can turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Now in verses 31 through 35, we see six questions that are posed by the Apostle Paul. I just want you to realize uh, something about this, that God is not threatened with hard questions, deep questions, questions that spring out of a faith and a longing to understand God. God is not threatened by those kinds of questions. So Paul asks, what shall we say to these things? What does he mean by these things? Well, Paul is looking back over his shoulder to the, th- to the three verses that he's talked about before. And the three things, that we, uh, three things that we understand and know about God. The first is the providence of God. That God is omniscient, perfect in wisdom. He is omnipresent, he is perfect in power. Or omnipotent, he is meaning perfect in power. He is eternal in being and has known all things. He is the creator and he has made everything and by him and through him all things consist or are held together. But since God created everything, we know he created Lucifer. And when he created Lucifer, he knew Lucifer would rebel and become Satan. We know God could have created Lucifer different, so that wouldn't have happened. 
So we must conclude that God's plan included all things, even the fall of Lucifer and the entrance of sin into this universe. And as a result of God's perfect judgment, the laws of sin, sickness, decay, and disintegration have entered into our world. All of this is a part of God's plan, and yet God has never, ever partnered with sin. It's amazing. Now, this divine plan does not need human support. Let me illustrate it for you. There's a monastery outside of Madrid in Spain. And this monastery was run by the Augustinians, which produced the, the order which produced Martin Luther. But in that monastery is, a, is an arch that is designed by an architect. And it was so flat that it frightened the king of Spain when he saw it. And he ordered a column to be built at the very center of this arch. But after the king died... The architect revealed that this column was exactly one quarter of an inch short. And that in all these years, that arch had never ever sagged in the least. In fact, guides, if they take you through this monastery, will take a lath and will pass it through the center of it to show you that after hundreds of centuries, this architect, is absolutely correct. My point is this. God's plan rests upon his foundation of his glory. And man continually has to try to build columns to support it. The only problem is they have always fallen short. God's plan centers in the work and the person of Christ. And if you grasp scripture, you will know God has never had a thought that has been separated or a work separated from Christ and his glory. But here's the amazing part. That God's plan has elected and chosen lost and depraved people, people like you and me, to experience his glory. Your life and my life has never and will never be part of the lie which evolution teaches, and that is we are mere creatures of chance. We are part of a divine plan that comes from the mind of an all-loving, an all-knowing, and an all-powerful God. Everything that enters our life is by design and purpose. Now let that soak in. This stuff is deep. Think about it. If we ever are going to be conquerors in life, we have got to believe some of these basic truths of God. Now, we know all things work together for good them that love God and are called according to his purpose. 
And as we go through life and the hard things we encounter, we are assured of three things. That everything we encounter in life has, that ha has passed through the will of God. It has had God's personal okay. Secondly, his plan has an eternal purpose. And thirdly, it is ultimately for his glory and my good. You know, for a moment, I want you to pause and to ponder just how incredibly favored you are. God says everything or all things work together for your good. Now, when God says all things, he literally means there are absolutely no exceptions or limits. Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 3.21, all, for all things are yours. And then in 2 Corinthians 4.15, for all things are for your sake. And in verse 32 of this same chapter of Romans 8, he says he spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not, how shall he not with him also give us all things? Everything works for our good. All the attributes of God, all the works of Christ, all the gifts and the powers of the Holy Spirit, there is absolutely no will, no active creature, no demons or angels that can do anything but work for your good. Isn't that incredible? So when Paul th says... When he says, we, what shall we say to things? He's referring to the providence of God. Imagine this. If you guys believe that everything that God has coming into your life is for your good, how radically different your life would be. Imagine how many lies have got to go. So he's talking about the providence of God, everything working together for good. But he also includes God's plan for all of us to be conformed to the image of Christ. In other words, in God's foreknowledge, he decreed that we should all become replicas of Jesus. Now let me take you deeper into this, under, and I'd give you a deeper understanding of foreknowledge because we have such a shallow understanding of God's foreknowledge. It goes far beyond the idea of God simply knowing beforehand and him doing something a little different in order to figure your plans into it. That is absolutely not foreknowledge. Here's how one theologian puts it. God's foreknowledge is an advanced determination to carry through a plan which he has purposed in the counsels of his own will which is to be carried through without variation because the Lord brings to pass all he has determined and decreed. That, my friends, is foreknowledge. He determined he would not, he would not allow his justice to dominate to keep humans out of heaven forever. God determined a way to satisfy his justice as well 
his as love and his grace. You see, God determined to take some people to heaven in spite of sin and in spite of themselves. Now hear me out before you guys judge me on this. Let me give you the balancing truth to this. The important point is that in salvation, it always begins with God. God must begin the quickening process to those who are dead in sin. Without it, none of us would ever be saved. Here's the reality. Not everyone receives life from God. Not everyone experiences this quickening process. The amazing thing is not one of us deserves to be included. And here you sit and have been quickened by God. Some time ago, I was approached by a very kind, loving individual after a message, and this individual asked me some good questions. And through it, I learned something valuable. That's so important for us pastors. And that is the need to listen and to learn. It's something I hope I never lose. Something we can't afford to lose as pastors if we're going to be effective. From it I learned that when we share these great truths, we have to be careful to stay balanced. To make sure there is balance. So when I made the statement, some will be in heaven in spite of themselves and in spite of sin, it's easy for some of you to walk away with the idea that it really doesn't matter how you live. So let me give you more clarity. You see, God in his foreknowledge decreed and determined to make you in the likeness of Christ, a replica he laid out the plans along with the blueprints and the specs. And that plan included Jesus coming to earth and dying for your sin. It included God calling you and, and giving you life. And joining you to Christ. And giving you a right standing before him. Righteous in his sight. He also gave you a divine nature, the Holy Spirit who threw open the doors to everything that God is and has that pertains to life and godliness. And Paul says in Philippians 3, not as though I have already attained, either are already perfect, but I follow after if I may be apprehend that which also I am apprehended of God. In faith and obedience, we follow and try to get a hold of the reason that God has got a hold of us. In faith and obedience. Is it true that only God can change me into the image of Christ? It's true. 
None of you could change me into that. It has to be a work of God, the word of God, and the power of God. But we cannot escape the fact that those who are called of God follow after God. Now, having established the foundation, let's consider the next question. If God be for us, who can be against us? Remember that little word, if, has not been translated the best. It is not implying doubt, but would be better translated since God is for us. If you have a pen or a pencil in your Bibles, I encourage people to write in their Bibles, by the way. I encouraged all kinds of chicken scratches. Underline the words, God before us. You know, I think it's absolutely amazing how many Christians think and believe that God is against them. And uh, it's a lie. Everything that God has and is works for your good. Listen to this. God is never against you. Uh, you know, I think there's so many Christians who think that God just can't wait to get the opportunity to condemn them. And for, in John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that hath sent me hath everlasting life, and notice this, and shall not come into condemnation. But is, but is passed from death unto life. The German word uses, the German uses the word gericht, meaning judgment. You will not, as a child of God, come into a judgment of condemnation. In fact, you will not come into a judgment of salvation. You know why? The cross was that judgment. The cross is where your sin got judged and Jesus took your hell. And as a child of God, you have nothing left but to take his heaven. You and I will never ever come into a judgment of condemnation. It is true we will come before the Bema seat of the judgment, uh, uh, the judgment seat of Christ, that judgment takes place in heaven and, that, and, the, and the, the purpose of that judgment is not to determine whether you get to heaven. You're already there. If you, if you are in the, in, in, uh, come before the, the judgment seat of Christ, you've already made it to heaven. The purpose of that judgment is for the judgment of is, is to determine reward. Not salvation, but faithfulness. And by the way, it's not by stature. The purpose of that judgment is determined yieldedness. You see, the most insignificant person in a church who is yielded could receive a much greater reward than any of his pastors. 
You know why this truth is so important that you guys believe you're victors? You know why? Because if you think you're a loser, you live like a loser. If you live like a victor, if you believe you're a victor, you start living like one. One plus God is always a majority. Think about it. One plus God is always the majority. You are always on the winning team. So God is not only not against us, he's for you. Uh, it's so important you guys get this. Because when we go through some hard things in life, it's easy to buy into the lie that God is against me. God before us could be reduced to one word, and that word is called grace. Unmerited favor. Now, if God is for you and he favors you, who could be against you? The reality is the world, Satan, You know, if there's ever been a time for a bold Christian, it's today. Uh, people who know who they are, know why they're here, and have no fear. Um, people who are willing to speak truth, who are willing to speak light to the issues of our day. We need people who have no fear. Who, who stand on some of these foundational truths and just are bold for Christ. Um, just the other day at work, uh, another Christian uh, came to me and asked me about the gay lifestyle. And I explained to him the gay lifestyle has its roots in a dysfunctional family where either one or the other parent is missing or disconnected. And the result is an unhealthy perversion. And as society disintegrates, this will only increase. But I said the church has an answer to this. Our answer to the gay lifestyle is a home where Jesus Christ is the head, the father leads, and the mother nurtures. And where a healthy sexual identity is established. And where healthy sexual parameters are reaffirmed. That is our answer to the gay lifestyle that is not normal, is not healthy, and only leads to more emotional and spiritual decay. We have an answer that works. Even statistics will prove to you that children in a heterosexual two-parent home are much more stable. That's not my statistic. That's the world's statistics. We have answers that work, and we need to be bold, and we need to speak the truth.
We need to start living like victors. And we've got to get rid of this, this defeated loser mentality we carry sometimes. I just, just intimidated by what the world calls us. Radicals, extremists, homophobic, whatever you, whatever you want, whatever labels they put on us. We don't care. We're about truth. Truth will always prevail at some point. We never apologize for the truth. Uh, we need to be tactful with it. There, uh, there's something to be said about being tactful with the truth. Verse 32. He spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things. I'm told that children which are adopted from poor third world countries, when they are placed in a home where there's plenty of food, will eat till they are either sick or rupture. Because they've known hunger for so long. For so many individuals, Christians, grace is the same. We either indulge it to an extreme or we kind of pocket it and live stiff, dull, and listless lives. Just not sure that it's going to last. So to everyone who needs the promise of how enduring that grace is, God gives something that you get to see. You get to see Jesus bruised, beaten beyond recognition, dripping with blood and spit, put on a cross, so that you have a visible demonstration that God is for you. And if he wouldn't withhold his son, is there anything that God would withhold from you that isn't for your good? No. Not at all. You know, some of these deep truths, that, you know, there's just sometimes in our worship and our praise, there are moments we just cry out and with and, and song and, and with, with sound. There are times, moments of worship are just moments of silence when you just prostrate yourself before God and say, you know, God, you're absolutely amazing. I don't deserve this. Verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. In other words, who shall accuse you? There are many who do it. The world does it. 
Satan does it. Even Christians do it. But the word of the judge is absolutely final. God has declared you, his elect, his chosen, his favored, to be righteous. And when that gavel hits the bench, that verdict stands for time. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Do you realize the only person that has the authority to condemn you is Jesus? But Jesus died for you. He rose again for you. And he sits at the right hand of God as your mediator, as your priest, and as your lawyer. And he pleads your case. When Satan condemns you, said he said, you deserve death. Jesus pleads, yes, he does. But I died for him. He deserves to be in hell. Yes, he does. But I went there for him. He doesn't deserve your blessing. No, he doesn't. But I raised him in heavenly places in me. How could I withhold any blessings? Do you see the amazing position that you and I have? It is absolutely undeserved. It is only because of his grace. It's only because of Christ. And he gets all the glory. In the Old Testament, the priest never sat down. Because his offer... His offering sacrifice for the sins of people, it was never finished. But after Jesus offered himself for your sins, and as your and my high priest, he sat down at the right hand of God to show us that his sacrifice for sin was sufficient, that it was accepted, and that it was good for all eternity. That's good stuff. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of God? And Paul gives us a whole list. Is there any kind of wedge? He goes to the visible things. Uh, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? I don't want to sugarcoat, sugarcoat any of this stuff this morning. You know, the reality is all of these things with trials. These are some hard, hard things. And you know, it's why some of the, these kinds of truths have to be your own personal possession. 
It's not going to work if you just believe what the pastor believes. Or you just believe what mom and dad believe. No, you believe it because you looked. God spoke it to you. And it's real and it's cemented into your heart. Paul quotes uh, Psalms 44:22 to show us that God's people have always been have been hated, have been hunted and have been slaughtered. Life can be really really brutal. In fact, Paul is so real that the suffering can be so bad that some people wish for death. That's how bad it can get. Defenseless and helpless, they are slaughtered as sheep. Verse 36, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. But you see, that's how it seems with the human eye. If you only looked at the surfaces, that's how it would seem. But Paul doesn't stop there. You know what the most powerful animal is on this earth? It's not a lion, a bear, an elephant, or a gorilla. No. The most powerful animal on this earth is one of God's sheep. Why? Because we are a part of God. That is why we are more than conquerors. And here's the secret to conquer in life. He gives us one of those life principles that works in so much of life. Um... In this verse 37, we get to see the heart of God in one of those principles that just works. That principle, the way to be exalted is to be abased and humbled. Jesus expressed it to his disciples when he said, The greatest shall be your servant. And he, he, takes, he, ta- he girds himself, takes a basin, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. In Matthew 18, when the question was put to Jesus, the question was put to Jesus, uh, who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You know what Jesus did? There was a crowd around. There's people around him, and he, he motions this little boy to come to him. He sets this boy in front of all, the, all those, those very lofty, prestigious, highly positioned men. And he says, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted, become as little children, ye shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever there shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The way to greatness And conquering in life is having a very simple faith in Christ 
and staying humble. Knowing that everything we have and are and will ever experience is undeserved and only because God first loved us. Paul says, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us, for I am persuaded, I'm convinced. Nobody's going to move me from this. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can take, move me from this position. My faith I have in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm cemented to it. Stop and imagine how, just how powerful this little church house could be if every one of you believed that. You went out and lived it every day. Now let's, let's, no, let's, let's imagine how different your life would be you were convinced of this truth you stopped living in fear you started living with power with boldness imagine how radically different your life would be let's do it let's pray Father, thank you this morning for the word of God. Thank you that it truly is life. The words you speak, that they are spirit and life, they minister to the, the deepest parts of our being. They add something. Something the world in all its glamour and glitz, it can't give us. That real power is, is silent and, and, and is gets placed within us and energizes us to, to become your ambassadors, your lips and your hands, and to boldly proclaim the truth of God and to live lives without fear. And boldly proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. Never apologize for standing in the truth, standing in the light, for being salt. Lord, thank you for the Apostle Paul who walked with you and whose life you revealed these kinds of truths. Lord, thank you for revealing the same truths to us. Thank you for the change, how it changes us. how we will become replicas of you. You deserve the glory. Is your grace. Is your life. Is your power. 
So you deserve all of it. And we want to give it to you, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name.